This morning's text is from 1 Samuel 11, 1 through 4. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Father, we need grace for the preaching and the receiving of your word. And so we pray for that now, Father. We pray that you would come and by the Holy Spirit, that you would apply this word powerfully to the life of the church. Lord, some of us are besieged by enemies on every side, and we're wondering how we're going to make it through. And we need a word of faith today. We need a word of hope today. We need a, a word of assurance that you're with us and that you can deliver us and that you can do great things. And so, Father, I trust in your spirit, and I pray that by your power you would work in the lives of your people. And for this, Father, I give you my thanks and my praise. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Terror. That's probably the word that best describes what the people of Israel were feeling in the days when King Nahash of Ammon besieged one of their cities. The particular city was named Jabesh Gilead, and if you happen to have a Bible map of that particular time of history, you'll see it just to the south and to the east of the Sea of Galilee. And if you look carefully at your Bible maps, you might see a little question mark by the city, and that's just because We're not 100% sure of the location of it, but we know that it was up in that general area. And we know that Ammon had, or or Nahash, had surrounded the city, which is what it means to besiege a city. And we know that he had threatened great violence against that place. Terror was definitely the word for the day. Now, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of background about this story. In fact, it really gives us almost no background. But thanks be to God that among the Dead Sea Scrolls was found a text that describes a little bit of the background of what was happening in the days when Nahash came against Jabesh Gilead. It seems from that text that Nahash had been uh, raiding multiple cities in this part of, of, of Israel. He had been doing so with great success, and he had been doing so with great violence. He would often surround them. He would, over time, defeat them. And then he was famous for causing those he defeated to gouge out their right eyes. And so, uh, although we don't know 100% if all the details of that story is true because the text that we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls was not part of the Scripture. It was a, an extra-scriptural text. But whether or not every single detail is true, one thing that we can know for sure is that it was not for nothing that Israel felt terror in the face of Nahash. It was not for nothing that they trembled when he came against one of their cities. And also, in addition to this, we can sympathize with Israel, beloved, because although we don't live in a land where there's a lot of military skirmishes and where there's war, we might be at war in places far away from here, but we don't have wars right here on our own land. 
Even though that's not true of us, we still do face many things in this life that strike a measure of terror into our hearts or, if nothing else, a sense of gripping fear, a sense of insecurity, a sense of hopelessness, a sense of wondering whether or not we're going to make it through a particular circumstance. For instance, when we face a health crisis, when we're diagnosed with a, with a very serious disease, sometimes a sense of terror strikes our heart, a sense of dread strikes us. It's one thing for somebody else to be sick, but when sickness visits your house, when sickness visits your body, sometimes you can be gripped with fear. Or how about a financial crisis, and I mean a serious one. Not the kind where you're wondering how you're going to pay your bills this month, but, but the kind where you're wondering if you're ever going to be able to pay your bills again. The kind where you're wondering if you'll be financially ruined. It's not for nothing that, that many people commit suicide over financial problems. It seems like a, a very permanent solution to a temporary problem, but at least we can have the compassion that in the moment there's a sense of gripping fear and maybe even a, of terror that strikes people when they face serious financial problems. Or what about relational issues, especially at a time of year like this? For some of us, Christmas is the best time of year. For others of us, it's the most painful time of year. It's the time where all the the family stuff comes up. And sometimes when we're struck with relational difficulties that seem to want to pull apart the relational fabric of our lives, we feel a sense of dread and uh, maybe even of terror, of of a gripping fear of wondering if we'll be able to make it through, wondering where our security is in life. Beloved, we have not experienced what Israel experienced in those days, but I think that we can relate to having this sort of reaction when serious opposition or serious difficulties face us in life. Now, in their case, it's good for us to have compassion for them, and that's really what I'm trying to do right now, is to help us feel what they felt and be a little bit compassionate toward their reaction. But we also have to admit that they were complicit both in the circumstances that were facing us and the sense of terror that they had in their hearts. And what I mean is that centuries and centuries before, God had clearly and repeatedly commanded them to put him first. He had clearly and repeatedly commanded them to love the Lord their God with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. He had repeatedly and clearly commanded them to trust in him and hope in him and believe in him and know that he could provide for them and he could protect them against any enemy on this earth. He told them to go into this very land and to conquer these very peoples by the power of his hand because he had already delivered these peoples into their hands. But beloved, instead of believing in the Lord, instead of valuing his words and his will, Israel over time gave themselves to the worship of many gods. Israel had a place for Yahweh in their lives, but they also made a place for lots of other things in their lives because, in essence, they were hedging their bets. And so, the main reason that their hearts melted in fear was because their lives lacked in faith. Their lives were lacking in actual belief. Their lives were lacking in the actual trust that God could deliver them from anything, from any enemy, no matter how pressing, no matter how dire the circumstances. They simply did not believe. If only they had believed in the Lord their God day after day and year after year and century after century, beloved, when a a, a king like Nahash came against them, they would have been filled with the spirit of Joshua and Caleb. They would have been filled with that humble 
but courageous spirit that says the Lord will give them into our hands. Let us trust in him. Let us seek him. Let us hope in him alone. But instead of believing in the words and in the ways of the Lord, notice with me in verse 1 that they almost immediately, the people of Jabesh-Gilead almost immediately reached out to Nahash, a foreign king, and asked him for what was known as a vassal treaty. A vassal treaty was the kind of treaty in which the people of that area would have become the slaves of Nahash, and then Nahash would have provided for their protection from other enemies. And so if I could put it this way, they would become Nahash's people, and he would in essence become their God. That's what they were asking for. The problem with this treaty, though, was that Israel didn't need Nahash because they already had a great and mighty king who could provide for all of their needs. Amen? They had a most powerful deliverer who could deliver them from any situation. They had a faithful God who was going to be faithful to them all the way to the end. But did you notice that when Nahash came against them, they didn't even pray? Did that stick out to you? They did not go to the Lord. They did not seek his wisdom. They did not gnash their teeth and tear their clothes and fling dust in the air as they did in those days. They did not fast. They did not call upon Samuel. They did not call upon their priests. They did not reach out to the king that God had just provided for them. They did nothing to seek the Lord. And why? Because they did not have hearts that were after the Lord, beloved. This was a pattern of life that led them into the middle of a big mess. Their hearts melted in fear because their lives lacked in faith. They were complicit to some extent, probably to a great extent, for the circumstances they were facing and also the feelings that they were having in the midst of that circumstance. We can be compassionate toward them and we should be compassionate toward them, but we also need to see that there was a lack of faith here. Now, even though it's good for us to see this and it's good for us to talk about it, we shouldn't get too haughty about this. We shouldn't lift our hearts up above the Israelites. I've told you before that when I was young in the faith and I was reading these stories, I would get so mad at Israel because I just didn't understand why these foolish people would refuse to believe in the Lord in one circumstance after another. But unfortunately, after living with myself in Christ for some time, I realized that I'm not all that different from them. And I don't think really any of us are. How do we tend to react when we face a serious crisis in our lives? What do you tend to do when someone very close to you or perhaps you yourself face a serious health issue? What do you do when that financial shortfall comes or when that financial disaster hits you like a tsunami? What do you tend to do when the relationships in your lives are severely threatened? Do we tend to seek the Lord in those moments? Is that our first response? Do we tend to read the Bible in those moments and seek the wisdom of God? Do we tend to, to go to our pastors and go to our fellow believers in Christ and seek wise counsel for how to, re, re, to, to respond to whatever is facing us? Is that the initial instinct of our heart? Or do we melt in fear? Do we melt into anxiety and sometimes even depression? Do we seek to solve our problems on our own? Do we reach out to other people and other things to come and, and, and relieve us from the difficulties in our lives? Do we, in essence... Make treaties with people and things that we should not be making treaties with, mainly because we're lacking faith. 
Now, I know that many of you in this church actually do seek God in times like this, and I don't mean to imply that you don't. I know that many of you have seen God deliver you from amazing things, and your faith is growing and growing and growing. I know that many of you are truly people of faith. We've talked about enough different stories together over the last eight or ten years that I I know that to be true. But even for those of us who are growing in faith, isn't it true that sometimes we too lack in faith? Isn't it true that even for us, when we face a serious circumstance, sometimes the initial instinct of our heart is to go to something other than God and not toward God himself? Beloved, we are Israel. We're more like them than we might think we are. And so I pray that we would learn from their lack of faith to exercise our faith as a first resort rather than as a last resort. I pray that when a Nahash surrounds our lives and threatens our livelihood and our safety, that no matter what we feel in our hearts, we would simply discipline ourselves to go to the Lord and go to the Lord and go to the Lord and seek his face and know his will. As for the people of Israel, Nahash said that indeed he would accept his treaty but under one condition, and it was a severe condition. He said, I'll take you as my people, but I'm going to gouge out the right eye of every man in Jabesh Gilead. And I think that he had at least two reasons for this. One is not in the text, the other is in the text. One is just a common sense thing that I think basically if you don't have sight, you can't fight, right? And so as a military king, he wants to cripple his enemies. He wants to keep them from being able to fight him again. He wants to gouge out their right eye. But the text itself says that he had a bigger aim in mind. And that is that he wanted to bring shame upon God's people. He wanted to humiliate them in the sight of his own people and in in, in the sight of the nations. He wanted to degrade them even in the sight of their God. In fact, he wanted to degrade the name of their God. He wanted to bring degradation upon this people. This was really his heart. And so upon hearing his answer, the leaders of the city of Jabesh Gilead, they wept, I'm sure, and they mourned, I'm sure. And then they did a very unusual thing. It kind of made me laugh when I first read this because I thought I would not think to do this. Rather than saying yes or no, they wrote back to him and said, hey, listen, would you give us seven days to go throughout Israel and find if, if there'd be anybody in our country that'd be willing to help, come, uh, help us fight against you? Doesn't that seem funny to you? It's like, hey, I know you're about to hurt us, but we want to go find some people that, that'll help us to hurt you. Is that okay with you, you know? And it's, the text is totally silent about Nahash's response, but the very next verse just says that, that, that the messengers went. So obviously he gave them their permission because there was no way for them to get out of the city without his permission. The first Samuel scholars that I've been reading for my messages in these days both agreed that probably what was happening here is Nahash was very arrogant and he did not fear Israel at all. He thought he could take them. He was not afraid of facing any size army that came from Israel. So he's like, sure, go get as many people as you can and I'll gouge their eyes out too. This probably was his heart. This probably was his attitude. He was incredibly arrogant, not only against the people, but against the Lord, their their God. And so it is that the messengers left from that place and they went from one town to another and they could find nobody to help them. And eventually they came to the place called Gibeah. This is the city where Saul was from. It was located pretty near to Jerusalem, just to the north and the west of that sacred city. When the messengers got there, they told the people of Gibeah what was happening, and the people themselves began to weep out loud. 
And I think that the reason that the people of Gabeah, which was some 42 miles away from Jabesh Gilead, the reason they began to weep is because they feared for their own lives and not just for the lives of their kinsmen up in Jabesh Gilead. They understood that if Nahash won that victory, he was going to invade the interior of Israel and all of them were in great danger. They were fearing not the Lord their God, but they were fearing this king. It just so happened that at this very time, Saul came in from the fields and he was behind the oxen. So that means that he was out in the fields plowing his father's fields. Now that's an interesting thing because for, for those of you who were here last week, you may remember that at the end of chapter 10, remember what they made Saul to be? They made him to be their king, right? But we know from other parts of the Bible that a year has passed between the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11. And after a year, Paul's not, Saul is not acting like a king. He's acting like a farmer. He has been slow to grasp his place and the people have been very slow to accept him as their king. They asked for him, God gave him, but they would not accept him. They would not embrace him. So there he was plowing the fields and he comes in from the field and he's behind the oxen and he hears the people weeping and he asks why they're weeping. And when he hears why the people are weeping, the Bible says that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul and he became very angry. Now I think we need to pay attention to at least two things here. First of all, this language of the spirit rushing upon Saul is identical to to the language that was used in the book of Judges for at least three of the judges before they went to deliver the people of Israel. So there's a connection here being made between the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel, between the judges themselves and and the ministry of Saul. This is the first time we've seen this happen in a long time. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon a man. And so the deliverance that was about to come was gonna come not from the man, but from the Lord. Very important point. The second thing I think we need to notice is that Saul was angry then specifically because the anger of the Lord had entered into him and was working through him. In other words, the anger he felt was not a fleshly anger, it was a godly anger. God was hotly upset with his people. And I think the main reason he was upset with his people is because they would not rise up to protect their own kinsmen. They would not have faith to know that he could deliver them from anything if they would only exercise their faith. One after another after another town, one after another after another city said, no, thank you, we will not help. And in the depths of their hearts, it probably was because they were afraid of Nahash. They cared more about their right eyes than they believed in the power of the right hand of God. And so you'll see in verse seven that Saul, in the righteous anger of the Lord, took a yoke of oxen, which probably means either two or four oxen, and he cut them up in pieces and he sent them throughout the territory of Israel. He sent them to all 12 tribes. He sent them to all of the councils of elders throughout their land. And I wonder if that action is bringing to your mind any other story in the Bible. I hope that it is, and in a few minutes we'll talk a little bit more about that. Along with these packages, if you will, Saul instructed his messengers to say this, and you can see this in verse seven. Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, that is to say, whoever doesn't show up at their appointed meeting place, so shall it be done to his oxen. So it's pretty easy to see that that this was a threat to the livestock and therefore to the livelihood 
of the leaders of Israel. He's saying, you either show up to help deliver these people and fight against this king, or I'm going to take away your livelihood. What's a little bit more difficult for us to see in English is that this was also a threat against their lives. I'm not adept enough at Hebrew. I'm better with Greek than I am with Hebrew. So it's even hard for me to see this in Hebrew, but the Hebrew scholars that I consulted this week, they all agree that the way that this was worded was an actual threat to the lives of the leaders and not just to their livestock. So he's threatening their livestock, their livelihood, and even their lives. He's saying, you had better come out, trust in the Lord, believe in the Lord, and fight for your kinsmen against this evil king. And this is why you can see in the middle of verse 7, that the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. Dread. That's the second really important word in this story. First terror and now dread. This is probably the best word to describe what the people of Israel were feeling when the Lord himself confronted them for their lack of faith and for their fear over Nahash the king. They were feeling dread. They were feeling hopelessness. They were feeling great fear. They were feeling a a bone-chilling desire to get out of the situation because they knew that their lives were on the line. In this moment, beloved, Israel now understood that the threat from the Lord was actually greater against them than the threat from Nahash. Nahash was threatening a, a part of Israel, and now God, through Saul, is threatening all of Israel. And I think that the leaders of Israel, it began to dawn on them how serious was their lack of faith, how serious God took that. It began to dawn on them how serious God was about the command to love him and put him first and trust him above all things. The people of Israel began to understand how serious it was that they did not embrace their king and trust their king and look to their king in a time of military crisis. And it was not a fleshly dread. It was a dread that came from the Lord. It was a gripping fear that said, it is time for you to get in line and obey my will, obey my words, obey my ways. I am for you. I am not against you. And now it is time for you to trust in me. It's amazing to me, beloved, how faithful God is to us when we're lacking in faith. Just blows my mind. This word is coming as a word of judgment, as a word of discipline to Israel, but it's actually a word of love. It's actually a word that's saying, my people, you are going to trust me. You're refusing to trust me, but now I am going to force you to trust me. Now as for us, beloved, when we face difficult things and when we fail to call upon the Lord, It is often the case that the Lord will yet work on our behalf because he is faithful to us. It is often the case that even when we're not looking to God, he is working through people and circumstances for our good and not for our harm. And it is often the case that when he finally confronts us with our lack of faith, along with that confrontation will come the discipline of the Lord, right? Sometimes his discipline is so strong that we'll feel a sense of dread. Other times we feel whatever we feel. But often, beloved, not only will the Lord provide for us, but he disciplines us because he loves us. If you'll keep your finger here and turn with me to Hebrews 12, starting in verse 5, I just want to remind you of the kind words of our Father to us. We're not so different than Israel, beloved. We're not so different in our hearts. We're not so different in our actions. And sometimes God simply confronts us for our good, even when he's working for our deliverance. 
Here's what the author of Hebrews says, chapter 12, verse 5. My son or my daughter, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. He's treating you as children. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons or daughters. You're not God's children. Our circumstances, beloved, are are different than Israel's circumstances, but our hearts are not so different than theirs, and our God is precisely the same God. Amen? The Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When we lack faith, he remains faithful to us, but part of his faithfulness to us is that he will discipline us in the midst of difficult circumstances. And the point I'm trying to bring before us today is that when God comes to discipline us for our good, let us not push him away. Let's not treat him lightly. Let's not treat his words as though they're nothing more than the words of some guy down the street that we don't really have to pay attention to. And let's not be so crushed by the Lord's discipline that we're sent into despair and into depression because his discipline in our lives is a sign of his love in our lives. The Lord's discipline in our lives is a sure sign that we are his children. And in fact, it says clearly in Hebrews, if we do not receive any discipline from the Lord, we're not inside the family, right? Which of you who have children have not disciplined your children? And if you have failed to discipline your children, what do your children think about you eventually? What do the people around you think about you eventually? Discipline implies love, and God's discipline implies the same, but to an infinite degree. So if you're in a time right now where the Lord's trying to stoke the fires of your faith, and as he's doing that, he's also having to discipline you, then don't push him away, beloved. He's trying to work in you for his glory and for your good. Now as for Israel, they showed up in large numbers to the place that that Saul had specified specifically, he told them to come out to a town named Bezek. And if you look at a Bible map, some of your Bible maps in your Bibles won't have it, but I have, I have a more detailed Bible atlas in the office. And if you look there, you'll see that the town of Bezek was right across the Jordan River from Jabesh Gilead. So Saul's trying to get all of Israel to come to a strategic place so that they can go out to help their brothers and sisters across the river. And they showed out in great numbers. The Bible says that 300,000 fighting men from, from Israel, from the central and the north part of the land, came out, and some 30,000 men came out from Judah, which is to say the southern and most distant parts of the land. When they had all gathered together, they instructed the messengers who had first come out to, to Saul to go back into Jabesh Gilead and to tell them that the next day that Saul and his men would, would give them deliverance. And they said, tell them that by the time it's hot, by the time it's around noon, they're going to be completely free from this king. And I, I don't know about you, but I'm touched by Saul's faith at this point because Saul is not saying we're going to come and help you and we'll see what happens. Saul knows that God is going to work deliverance. The spirit of the Lord has rushed upon him. In humility, he has called out to Israel. He has, he has issued the discipline of the Lord to Israel and he is now confidently but humbly confirming that they're going to win that victory and by noon, The next day, Jabesh would be free. 
I'm hearing this news. The elders of Jabesh decide to go out to King Nahash and say, listen, they're, gonna, they're working military deceit here. They say, listen, tomorrow we're going to hand ourselves over to you. We're going to surrender to you. So just give us one more day and, and we'll surrender to you tomorrow. So they're trying to disarm them. They're trying to get ready to get their enemies ready for a victory when in fact defeat is on the way. Now given, up, given all the build up to this story, it really surprises me how little the Bible actually says about the battle. If you look in verse 11, everything we know about this battle is contained in that one verse. And let's read it together. It says, and the next day, Saul put the people into three companies, so a little over 100,000 persons per company. And they came into the midst of the camp, probably from three different sides, in the morning, watch, and they struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day, and those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together, plain and simple. I suppose, really, that's all that needed to be said. Saul went out by the Spirit of the Lord, and Saul led Israel to victory by the Spirit of the Lord. Enough said. Probably what's more important than the details of the battle, it certainly was in the author's eyes, was what transpired after the battle. If you look at verse 12, you're going to notice that the people of Israel, which probably means the leaders of Israel, came to Samuel and they said this. They said, listen, now that we've won this victory, we would like for you to name to us the people who grumbled against Saul. You remember from last week that when Saul was installed as king, there was a group of folks who, who uh, grumbled against him, and they said, this guy will never deliver us. We're not going to bring him tributes. We're not going to bring him presents. We're not going to give him honor. We're not going to give glory to God. This guy is not our king, even though God had installed him as king. Probably one of the reasons why Israel was slow to embrace Saul as their king over the last year was because of this group of grumblers. Sometimes grumblers can be very powerful people. And so now, after Saul had led them to victory by the power of the Lord, the people come to Samuel, not to Saul, but to Samuel, and say, give us their names. And the clear implication is, we're going to kill him. But I praise God for Saul's heart. I really do. I praise him for his humility. Because right at that moment, Saul stands up and says, no, we're not going to do it that way. Nobody's going to die today. And why is nobody going to die today? Look at what it says in verse 12 there, or I think it's verse 13. Saul says, because the Lord has worked a great deliverance for us today. He didn't take glory for himself. He gave all the glory to God. And basically what I hear him saying is God has been so gracious to us, and beloved, we are going to be gracious to each other. I have every cause to kill those who would not support me, but I will not do it because God is gracious and therefore we are going to be gracious. Oh, what a powerful word. Do you understand? Saul is still a young man. I don't know how old, but he wasn't very old, probably in his 20s or something. Can you see the, the, the level of constraint that it took for him to do this? the level of maturity that it took for him to do this, the spiritual insight that he had to have in order to make a decision like this. Grace was being poured upon Israel, beloved. That's what was happening here. And so Samuel said to the people, he said, listen, given all that, let's go down to the city of Gilgal and let's renew the kingdom before the Lord. Let's celebrate these things before the Lord. Let's give our thanks to him. Let's give our praise to him. Let's worship the Lord with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Now before we talk about that scene down in Gilgal, I want to just stop to say that this, this chapter is incredibly rich, beloved. It's incredibly meaningful. 
If you're somebody who does a lot of Bible study on your own, I want to encourage you, take 1 Samuel chapter 11 very seriously. God is doing amazing things in this chapter. It's so rich and it's so deep that I found myself praying last night, like, Lord, I wish that I was preaching in India tomorrow and not in America, because in India, they want their pastors to preach for one or two hours long. I mean, they really expect that. And for me, it's not a matter that I want to hear my own voice for that long, it's, it's a matter that sometimes there are things so rich and deep and so touching and meaningful that I just want to have the time to press into them. But alas, we're in America and we don't have the time to do that, but I want to at least take a few minutes to sort of point out some connections with you between this story and another story, and I really want to encourage you, if you have a heart really to understand your Bible, take the time to follow up on the things that I'm going to summarize here in just a few minutes. I wonder if the major cities that have been mentioned in this story, Jabesh and Gilead, or Gabeah, I wonder if they have made you think of another story in the Bible. I wonder if Saul's actions in cutting up those oxen made you think of other stories in the Bible. If so, I would hope that you are thinking of the end of Judges and that horrible and hopeful story of what happened there at the end of that season of Israel's life. It was a a story of, of the reality of what it was like to live in Israel, and it was a story of the unbelievable faithfulness of God to his people, no matter how wicked they had become. Judges has 21 chapters, and 19, 20, and 21 are all one story. In chapter 19, you may remember that there was a Levite who had a concubine, which was a sort of a half-wife. She was something more than a girlfriend, something less than a wife. And she had cheated on him, and so he went in grace to pursue her. And, and he, he uh, I was going to say retrieved her, but that just felt like a wrong thing to say about a human being. <laughs> but he went to her father's house, and he got her back. He won her heart back. And he began to take her back home, and they, they were traveling back home, and the sun was setting, and so they decided to stop in this town of, of, of Gibeah, where Saul was from. They expected to receive hospitality from the Lord's people. They expected to be treated kindly. They expected to be given a place to stay and a nice meal to eat and to be sent on their way the next day. But unfortunately, I'm going to hold back the details just because there's kids in our midst today. But unfortunately, what ended up happening is that the actual leaders of that city not just wicked people in the city, but the leaders of that city, came out and they ended up at the end of that evening taking the concubine out of the house and they treated her in any way they wanted to treat her. And the next morning, the language of the Bible says that they threw her away in the morning. They threw her down to the, to the doorpost or the, the threshold of where this Levite had been staying. And though she wasn't dead at the moment, He picked her up and put her on his donkey and began the the journey home, and on the way home, she actually died. And he was just horrified by what had happened to him by the very people of God. And so the next day, again, I'm going to spare you the details, but he did to that woman exactly what Saul had done to those oxen, and he sent packages all over Israel, specifically to the leaders of Israel, and he sent a message that said, I want justice. There's some Bible scholars who you'll find they apologize for this story in Judges and they say that this is an example of how women were just treated as property in those days, but they're completely misunderstanding the story. Exactly the opposite is true. There was a small group of people who treated her like a piece of junk, a piece of property, and they threw her away when they were done with her. But this guy did not feel like this. He wanted justice for a woman whom he loved and for a God whom he glorified. 
And so it is that in Judges chapter 20, over 400,000 people from Israel came out to this city called Mizpah. It was a sacred city for them. And they rendered justice for this woman. They too cared about her. They too were against the people who had done this. Nobody was condoning what happened here. Nobody was treating this woman like chattel. It was just the opposite. They were there to vindicate her, to vindicate the name of God, to fight for justice. And basically what they said when they gave their verdict, and it was an official court-like verdict, they said, give us the people from the city of Gibeah who did this, and we will put them to death and the matter will be done. The city of Gibeah is part of the tribe of Benjamin, and it's such an unfortunate thing that the leaders of Benjamin would not have justice. They refused to receive the verdict of the people of Israel, and instead they brought out their troops, 26,000 strong, to fight against Israel that day. It was a tragic thing. Oh, may the Lord give us more humble hearts than that. And when he pronounces verdict against our sin, may we simply and humbly receive it, but they would not receive it. And so, long story short, in chapter 20, Israel and Benjamin end up going to war. Israel loses 40,000 people, so they lost a tenth portion of their, of their warriors from 400,000. They lost 40,000. And Benjamin lost 25,000 of their warriors. And the bottom line is this tribe was left with only 600 people in it. So imagine that one of the states in the United States, that they act up like this and the rest of the states feel compelled to go and fight against this one state and when the war is over, there's only 600 men left in that state. Imagine what that would be like. When this war was over at the beginning of chapter 21, what we see is Israel not celebrating their victory. They just about wiped out one of their tribal kinsmen. This was not good news. These were not good times. They were mourning together. They were in deep, passionate mourning together, and they, they, they gathered together to seek the Lord as to what they should do. Benjamin, you see, was left with only 600 men, and their area had been so decimated that there were no lot wives left for these men. The rest of Israel could have just given them virgin girls for their wives, but they had made a pact not to do that. And so now they're wondering, what in the world should we do? And they got together and they prayed and they came up with this plan. Before the battle, everybody in Israel had agreed that if they did not show up to the battle, they were going to willingly give their lives. They would pay with their lives for failing to participate in the execution of justice in the land. And so what the leaders of Israel decided to do was do a, a search and see, did anybody fail to show up? And as they did their investigation, they found that indeed one town in all of Israel failed to show up. Can you guess which town it was? It was Jabesh Gilead. So you see the evil happened in Gibeah. The only people who did not show up were from Jabesh Gilead. And so the leaders of Israel decided, this might not sound compassionate to you, but I think it was compassionate. They decided, let's go up there and let's not kill all their men, but instead, let's take their virgin daughters from them. We will give those daughters to Benjamin as their wives, and in this way, we will preserve a tribe of Israel. We will keep them from becoming extinct. And there were some other parts of the story, but basically, that's the fullness of the story. This is how these two cities became to be interrelated, and beloved, they became famous in the history of Israel. To mention the names Gibeah and Jabesh Gilead is like saying Gettysburg to us. When you think Gettysburg, what do, you, what do you think immediately? What do you think? Civil War, right? For them, that's what they thought about when they heard Gabeah and Jabesh Gilead. 
And what I want you to see is that 1 Samuel 11 is the story of an amazingly faithful, gracious God who is redeeming his people. He's unbelievably compassionate. Do you see the grace that's involved in God choosing a king for his people from Gibeah of all places? From that evil, Sodom-like city? And God would choose him to be their king. Oh, this is grace, beloved. This is redemption. This was a tribe that was almost extinct and now God says, one from their lot shall be your king. And the first thing he will do is deliver that city of Jabesh Gilead by the power of my spirit. By the grace of my heart, he will deliver a people who are almost themselves wiped out. Beloved, this is a redemption story. This is a story of God being unbelievably gracious and faithful to his people and showing himself to be an able savior, an able deliverer. You see, none of this was lost on these people. None of this was lost on Samuel. So when he saw that victory, this is why Samuel said, listen people, here's what we need to do. God has done a great thing today. So let's go down to Gilgal. This is another important city. This is the place where Joshua had renewed the covenant with the people of Israel after they got done doing laps in the desert for 40 years and finally trusted God to bring them into the promised land. Joshua brought them to Gilgal and there they renewed the covenant. They devoted themselves to the Lord their God. So so Samuel says, let's go there and let's do this. Let's renew again the kingdom. At least that's what it says in the ESV. But in the Hebrew, it more literally says, let's renew the kingship. And I think that's important because remember, Saul had been installed as king, but the people were not receiving him as king. Do you understand? They demanded a king. God gave that king to them and they said, no thank you. (laughs) No thank you. Isn't it interesting that our conceptions of what we want are always different than what God actually provides for us? And when we get what we want, we're often we're disappointed in what we got because it's not the same as the idol we had created in our minds. And so the people said no thank you to Saul, but now they're saying amen, Saul's the man. So let's go to Gilgal. This was a 32 mile march and all 330,000 of these people made that march. And there before the Lord they did several things. They installed Saul as their king. A year later they finally said all right, he's the man, he's the man. And in a few weeks we'll see that he reigned for over 40 years, he's our man. And they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, which I think had vertical implications. They're saying, Lord, let's have peace with you. We're sorry for our sin. We're sorry for our lack of faith. We're sorry for our lack of fidelity to you. We're sorry that we did not trust in you and hope in you and cling to you. And it had horizontal implications. Lord, because of your grace in our lives, we will not kill the grumblers. We will embrace them as our brothers and sisters before you. We will love them as you have loved us. And for any tensions and fear and difficulties that are among us, Father, we sacrifice peace offerings because we want your peace and we want to know you. We want to be like you. And then the final thing that you'll see happen at the very end of verse 15 is the word rejoicing. They greatly rejoiced. And this is the third word for the day that I think fulfills the trilogy. They went from terror to dread to rejoicing. 
They sense terror at the, at the presence of an evil king. They sense dread in the presence of the Lord. And now through his grace, dread was transformed into rejoicing. God had done amazing, amazing things for Israel, beloved. And what else could they do? What else could they do but worship his holy name? Now that same day, Samuel stood up and he gave a historic speech. That's what chapter 12 is all about. We're gonna look at that speech next week. I really encourage you to read it ahead of time. You'll get a lot more out of next week if you read chapter 12 multiple times. I have to, I have to go move the rest of our junk out of a, a storage facility today and put it in our garage so that we can have more chaos in our house for the next few weeks. And my plan is to put that chapter on a loop and just listen to it over and over and over again. It's one of the most significant speeches in the Bible. And I encourage you to take it seriously. But we'll look at that more next week. For now, I just really want to say one more thing. And that is that in our own lives, when God shows himself to be our protector and our provider, our deliverer, then we should join Samuel and Saul and the rest of the people of Israel. And we should rejoice in the Lord. We should give thanks to his name. We should take the time to do whatever it is that we have to do to render the praise that is due to him. Don't you find often that when you're in a messy situation, you're so desperate for God, but then when he delivers you, it's so easy to just forget God, isn't it? And I think that the final lesson of the day for us is that we should follow Samuel and Saul right into the presence of the Lord and give him thanks for showing himself to be stronger than health issues, than financial issues, than relational issues, than any issue we can face in this life. When God displays himself as our God, let us give him the thanks that is due to his name. For us, beloved, God has provided a better king as we saw last week. Amen? I think to this point of the story, Saul is a good man. He's a good king. But Jesus Christ is a much, much better king. He's the humble lawgiver who was willing to be treated like a lawbreaker so that you and I could be free in the presence of God forever. And all we have to do is look to him in faith and hope and trust and say, Jesus I believe that you're enough for me. I believe that you can forgive all of my sins. I believe that you can deliver me from all of my enemies. I believe that you're more powerful than any power in my life. I believe in you, Lord. I believe, and if we will do that, beloved, he will show himself to be our king. He will show himself to be our deliverer. And when he does that, let us praise his name. Amen. So right now, I don't know where you're at in your life. Maybe some Nahash in your life has surrounded you and you feel terror. Maybe you've called out to the Lord and he's sending help along with his discipline or maybe you've been recently delivered from something. I don't know where you're at. But I wanna take a, a few minutes now to go before the Lord and just to give him our thanks and praise. So I'm gonna pray for a minute and then while the worship team is coming up, I'm gonna just give you a couple minutes of silence to just be before the Lord and give your thanks and praise to him, to call upon his name. Let's pray together. Oh, our Father, I thank you for the power of your word. You told us in Romans 15, 4, that your word was given to us to encourage us that we might have an unbreakable, unshakable, untakeable hope in Jesus Christ. And I pray that the story before us today would in fact be that for us. I pray that we would learn from this story that sometimes our hearts melt in fear because our lives lack in faith. And I pray that we would learn from this story that even when we lack in faith, you do not lack in faithfulness. And Father, I pray that you'd give us hearts to let your faithfulness work in our lives. I pray that we would receive your discipline. I pray that we would receive your help. 
And I pray, Lord, that as we see your delivering power, that we would be quick to render the praise that is due to your name. Father, we love you and we pray that you'd stir in us now by your spirit as we are quiet in your presence. Father, there's nothing so valuable in this life as faith in Jesus Christ, and so I pray that you would stoke the fires of our faith now as we rise to sing praises to your name, and it is in your name that we pray, amen.